Old Testament book of Amos. And you do know that he was famous. Certainly you've heard of famous Amos and his chocolate chip cookies. So if you can find famous Amos's book and his chocolate chip cookies, uh, we'll be spending some time there. Uh, specifically in Amos chapter 5 is where we'll kind of camp today. So if you want to get specifically there, you can. So we've been looking at um, the Old Testament book of Amos. And this morning we've kind of reached the halfway point. So, um, oh, we're halfway there. Living on prayer. Anyways, we're at any song. Maybe someday we'll write that. I don't know. Anyways, we're halfway through this entire thing. So really, um, we've kind of explored one of the major themes of the book, which is injustice and justice, and really the the judgment of God that came upon the people because they weren't standing for justice. So this morning we're going to start talking about the second major theme of the book, which it's not justice, but it's worship. Everyone say worship. Worship. So we're going to talk a little bit about worship together today. And the entire book, you can break it up into three sections. And here are the three sections that you can break up the entire book in. Um, the first one is chapters 1 and 2 talk about looking around and seeing God's judgment. And we've talked about this the first two weeks that we were in the book. Uh, basically what we're talking about there is Amos starts and he doesn't start poking really anything at the people of God. He talks about the surrounding nations. And everyone's like, yeah, we agree with you. They're scumbags. And we're not. We're the people of God. And then it switches and Amos starts to say, yes, even though the people out there, they have their issues. The people inside the church, the people of God, we also have our issues. Which really is the second major section of the, the book, which really is chapter 3 through 6. And it talks about looking within and seeing the corruption. So we're not just talking about out there. We're talking about sometimes the people of God, the church needs to, we need to look at ourselves and realize that there are some things that we need to respond to, that we need to do better at. The third section of the book is really chapter 7 through 9, and it's talking about looking ahead and seeing the end that's coming. Um, so we're talking about worship today. So Amos really gets to the heart of worship when he says this. He says that, and he's speaking for God because he's a prophet. So he's heard this from the Lord, and he says that God says, Hey, I hate your songs. I hate your music. I really cannot stand your worship at all. It makes me sick. That pretty much gets to the chase, doesn't it? So um, like when God says that about your worship, that's not a good day. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying. And here's the reason behind it. He's saying, hey, I hate your music. I hate your songs. I hate your festivals. I, the entire thing just makes me sick. And here's the reason why. Because you say those things with your lips. And your life is marked with sin. So we're in Amos chapter 5. Um, I'm going to give you several portions. We will read the entire chapter. So I'll tell you where we're at so that you can make sure you follow along. The first two verses that we'll look at are Amos chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Amos chapter 5. So think of it like this. 5, 6, 7, 8. Anyways, that's where we are. 5, 6, 7, 8. Um, Amos chapter 5. Come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire. Devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel. That's an important phrase. We're talking about worship today. And I want you to notice that phrase. Your gods, lowercase g, in Bethel. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames. 
Verse 7, you twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. Jump down to verse 10 with me. Verse 10 through 12. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depths of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Come down with me to verse 21. This is really the heart of what we're going to talk about today. Verse 21 through 24. I hate all of your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I won't even notice at all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So Amos, obviously, he's a prophet. And um, so throughout the Old Testament, prophets were really known and characterized by this one phrase. And all of the prophets, uh, you can find this phrase in what they write and what they say and how they deal with the people of God. And that phrase is always this, thus says the Lord. The Lord. It's really one of the characteristics that sets the prophets apart from everybody else because they approach their subject matter with this conviction Hey, this isn't what I have to say about it, but I've heard this from the Lord, and thus says the Lord. If they got that wrong, if they said, thus says the Lord, and the Lord didn't say that, they'd be put to death. So that's good motivation to make sure that you're only going to say the things that you really did hear from the Lord. Amen? Because like, if not, they're going to kill you. It's just that simple. So you better get it straight. And um, Amos wants to make sure that he gets it straight. So it's this idea that I've heard this message from the Lord, and I'm going to communicate it to the people of that day. And here's the amazing thing about the prophets. Even though he heard it from the Lord, he communicated to the people of that day, because of the Word of God, the Bible, we get to see it, and we also get to say, well, how does that still apply to us today? You would make a terrible mistake if you read Amos or any other prophet, for that matter, and just said, hey, that's what God said to a different time, to a different group of people. There's no way that I can apply that to my life. That would be a terrible mistake. Because we can't apply it to our lives. And in fact, we must. Now, I understand that it is a different time. It's a different group of people in different circumstances. So the question that we need to ask ourselves today is this. What is God saying to me? And what is God saying to the church today? One of the things that we have in common with the people of Amos' time, other than the chocolate chip cookies. I mean, think about this. Amos was writing his stuff during the 8th century B.C. So you have Christ, and Christ's life and death and resurrection really is the watershed of all human history. You understand that, right? I mean, that's just phenomenal to think about. So like we mark all of time, all of human history by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's just an incredible thought. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that's incredible. So we mark all of time with that. So eight centuries before Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, that's when Amos is doing his thing. So the 
primarily the group of people that he's talking to is Israel. He's talking to really Judah a little bit, but it's really directed for the most part at Israel. And what's going on in Israel at this time? I'm glad that you asked. It's a peaceful time. Maybe we can relate to that. Um, so we have a lot in common with that. Maybe we can relate to the fact that it's a peaceful time. We're not really at war right at the moment. It could change. You know, I don't mean to be a doomsday prophet, but really it could change before we're done here today. That could change. But I mean, relatively, it's a time of peace. It was also a time of prosperity for the nation. Well, well... Oh, we'll move on. This was a prosperous time for the nation. But the thing that we really do have in common with them is that just like us, they gather together on a weekly basis to praise and worship God. It's really, I mean, think about that. We're talking eight centuries before the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now we're how many centuries past that, but we still gather together and we worship Jesus. We get together and we praise God because he's good and he's faithful and he's worthy of our worship and our praise. So we've been doing this for a really long time. And the thing that's amazing about that is why do we do that? Well, because God said that we should. It's a great idea, isn't it? I mean, it's good motivation. When God says you should do it, we probably should do it. And in fact, in the New Testament, we're told that we should never forsake this. Man, I tell you, that's an important word for us today. Because there are so many other things that vie for our attention. And sometimes it's easier for us to commit our time to that. And we are tempted to forsake this time. But we certainly are not supposed to do that. I mean, we've been, we obviously worship differently than they did 2,700 years ago. I mean, you understand that, right? We probably don't sing the same songs. It might look a little bit different. But here's the truth. We still do it. We get together. We worship. We praise. And it's something that God told his people to do then, and he still tells us to do it now. So you would think that if God told us to do it, and people have been doing it for 2,700 years, at least the context that we're talking about today, that certainly this is pleasing to God. You would think. And yet Amos says things like this. Thus says the Lord, I hate, no, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your offerings. Take away from me your songs. I don't like your worship. I don't have time to break that all down this morning. But if you want to do a fascinating word study this week, this would be a great verse to look at. And I mean, I won't go through all of it just for the sake of time. But if you take the original language and what that meant to the original audience... You can see just how serious this was. I mean, you kind of get the hint, at least a little bit, as it's translated into English. I mean, like, this sounds like it's a pretty stern word, right? I mean, God's not happy. But if you read what it's saying in the original language, the original people that it's being spoken to, I mean, I'm telling you, these folks, suffice it to say, uh, it was a very strong language and it would have been shocking to the people that heard it in that first day. It would have been shocking and um, to hear God say that about anything would be shocking, but to hear him say that about the way that they worshiped would have stopped them dead in their tracks. Now, what would cause God to turn around and reject the worship that he himself had commanded? I mean, why do we do this? 
Why do we get together? Why do we do this? Well, the answer to that is super simple. It's because God commanded us to. Well, why did he command us to do it? Because it's good for us, number one. It really is good for us in many, many ways. It's good for us to get together and praise and worship God. So it's good for us. And this entire thing was his idea. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I want to know what were the people doing wrong? Why was worship unacceptable to God? And more to the point, could our worship somehow be unacceptable to God? So if, I mean, we're just doing this because God told us to do it, but somehow the people in Amos' day, they were doing it. They're doing the same thing that we're doing. I granted it was different. But they're doing the same thing basically that we're doing, and their worship could be unacceptable. Could we be unacceptable to God? Could our worship be displeasing to Him? Are we doing any of the same things? Is our worship acceptable? What would make God despise? That's a strong word. What would make Him despise and reject a people's worship? Well, one possibility, I suppose, would be if that worship was done poorly. I think that God might reject it. I mean, if no effort went into it whatsoever. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine how wonderful music would sound and worship would sound if the people who were up here this morning, if they didn't bother to practice once? Like they didn't rehearse. They didn't work at playing their instrument. They didn't, um, they just got up here and, you know, like 30 seconds before worship started, they just got up there to be like, hey, what do we want to do today? And they just like, whatever it is, let's just let it rip. I mean, that's really going to honor God, right? By the way, that's not what happens. You understand that, right? There's hours of preparation that goes into the worship that we get to enter into every morning. You understand that, right? That they've practiced, that they've rehearsed, that there's planning that goes into even picking the songs that um, Danita, she enjoys playing music. So like she's, how many times have you played through this music this weekend? More than once? Yeah, more than once. There's practice that goes into it. Why? Because it matters. We want to give God our very best. But let's just imagine that none of that happened. And let's just imagine that um, we stop altogether caring about what the space looks like. Because there's something to be said about that, right? So how many of you would be glad to be here? I mean, the people who are up here doing worship, they put no effort into it whatsoever. We've not cleaned the place in months. So there's this trash all over the place, empty water bottles all over the place. And, and we're like, hey, come worship with us. That'd be fantastic, right? You'd feel right at home and you'd really feel like giving God your best, right? No, people have to do that. People have to clean and we want to present our very best to God. Why? Because that's part of worship. And you would, I mean, you would be okay with it. Like if I didn't bother planning a sermon at all, right? You don't want me to spend any time in study throughout the week. I mean, I'm talking to a pastor here, right? So that would be absolutely okay. If I just got up on Sunday morning and be like, you know what? I'm just going to shoot from the hip. Whatever the Lord lays on my heart, I'm just going to let her rip. I haven't thought through it at all. And if I have some terrible jokes running through my head, I'll just get up here and do bad jokes for an hour. I mean, you'd be absolutely okay with that, right? You have no problem with that. <laughs> Everyone would accept that, right? No. no, why? Because it's part of our worship. And because it's part of our worship, we should expect the best from one another. You should expect my best. I should expect your best. 
You should expect the people who are up here leading us up in worship, you should expect their best. Should you expect perfection? Absolutely not. But you should expect their best. When we approach this time, everything that we do, everything that we contribute to it should be our, our best. Because it's worship. It's, it's part of our way that we communicate our love and affection to God is to give Him our very best. And can you imagine a congregation that we didn't put any effort into anything? I mean, the building's in disarray. We stopped cleaning it. The worship's terrible. The preaching's even worse. We would all be okay with that, right? I mean, because after all, if all of that's just terrible and they're shooting from the hip, so let's face it, it's going to be a short service. So at least we beat the Baptist Applebee's today, right? I mean, there's got to be a silver lining in there somewhere. We'd all be okay with that, right? Well, you know, I'm afraid that that's not as far-fetched as it might seem. So worship that's pleasing to God always demands our best. Worship that's pleasing to God always demands our best. You've heard people say things like this, I'm sure. Maybe you've even said it. Have you ever heard somebody say, God's just after my money? Have you ever heard something that say something like that? Yeah. Well, God's just after my money. You silly rabbit. <laughs> you silly rabbit. God's not after your money. That's just the tip of the iceberg. He wants everything. He doesn't want your money. Your money means nothing to him. He wants everything. The only problem is we tend to hold on to our money so much that he's like, hey, let's just start there. Let's just start with your money. But he's after the entire thing. You understand that, right? He wants it all. And he won't relent until he has it all. There was a great Methodist missionary by the name of E. Stanley Jones. You guys know what E stands for? I have no idea. I thought maybe you could tell me. But E. Stanley Jones, I suppose I could figure it out. But E. Stanley Jones, great missionary um, with the Methodist Church, he talked about giving God our best time. And all the people that he could, it was one of the common themes that he would talk about all the time. And here's the point that he was making. You know, sometimes what we do is we give God the leftovers of our time. So... Like E. Stanley Jones specifically was talking about the fact that, you know, we've not spent any time talking to the Lord all day long. So we're about ready to pass out in bed at night and we're like, oh, I haven't I haven't spent any time talking to the Lord. So I'll spend this little bit of time talking to him. And, you know, after all, something's better than nothing. So we spend the leftover part of our time with the Lord and that's not our best. So E. Stanley Jones would say, no, here's what you need to do. Maybe that is your best time. You know, maybe you're wired different than some, and, and maybe that's your best time. But E. Stanley Jones would say, you need to find your best hour of the day, whatever that is. For me, it's mornings. My best time is in the morning. So E. Stanley Jones would say, Phil, then you need to find that hour in the morning that's your best and give that hour to the Lord. Don't give him your leftovers. Give him your very best. Give him your best hour and say, that hour is set aside to the Lord. That's good counsel, isn't it? Why? Because that's worship. Why? Because it's giving him our very best. In one of our assignments, not the one you're thinking of, but a different one, I officiated, still to this day, what was the most difficult, painful funeral I've ever officiated at. And I, I mean, I've done some 
horrific funerals. This particular one, um, because I'm on camera, I have to be pretty selective about what I can tell you and what I can't tell you because we're on camera. But this particular one was for a 30-year-old young man um, who was engaged and had a young child. And if you and I were to have talked to this young man, you would have not seen any warning signs, um, but he took his own life. He was at a party with a bunch of friends. He took his own life. And I didn't know him at all. I had never met him, but his dad was somebody that I knew, and, and he had become a friend of mine. So when this all took place in his family, he said, Phil, would you, uh, would you help us and would you officiate at his funeral? And of, of course that I definitely will. So I took people from our church because I knew it was going to be tough. And I planted people from our church. I think I had eight of them who came from our church and they were all part of our prayer team. And uh, many of them were on our deliverance and wholeness team. I mean, quality people. I trusted these folks. I'm like, I want you just to come, just sit in the funeral somewhere. Don't all sit together because it'll be obvious. But just come sit in the funeral and just pray. So I have these people of great faith who I've put in the room. And even with these eight people of great faith in the room, there was zero faith in the room. Do you hear what I'm saying? Zero faith. So we get through with the entire thing and they're paying their final respects and saying their goodbyes. And these people all about the same age, late 20s, 30-something year olds, they all come up one by one and they are devastated. There's 30-year-old men who are standing at his casket sobbing. I've never seen anything like it in my entire ministry. Um, one guy was so visibly upset that he's like shaking the entire casket to the point that I thought he was going to knock it on the floor. Just, I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. So I finished it up, and I'm going to be honest with you, the entire thing just wrecked me. So... I finish up the stuff, and, and we do what we need to do. And I'm talking to some people who knew that crowd that was at the, the group that day. And I'm like, man, that was the most difficult funeral. I was a hospice chaplain for a while. I mean, I've been around difficult funerals. I'm like, that was the most difficult and painful funeral I've ever done. So I'm like, this group of people that were here, um, who are they? So they knew enough. They're like, well, you know, this group over here, that's... They're related so and so. I'm like, but how do they? How do we know them? How are they part of our community? And they said, oh, they're part of our community. They live over this part of the, the community. I'm like, I've never seen them before. And I said, this group, tell me about them. Um, oh yeah, yeah, they're a part of our community. They live over here. This is how they knew the deceased. And I'm like, I have never seen them before. And for whatever reason, I. I've always been very intentional about knowing my community, being a part of the community, and investing in the community, because I want to know them. Because our job is not just to be the church to each other, it's our job to be the church to our community. So I've always gone out of my way to know that. So here's this group of people, it was a, a room this size, packed with people. They were all part of our community, and I didn't know one of them. There's something wrong with that. So I really was bothered by the entire thing. And I started to talk with our leadership team at the time. And I said, um, we've got to do better. There's this huge part of our, our community, this, this segment of our population that no one's doing anything to reach. That's obvious. 
All you have to do is be at the funeral and realize that there's zero faith. So we need to do something about that. And the Lord gave me a vision. Imagine that. You know, if we just get a burden for the people around us, you know that God's going to give us a vision. He'll give us resources that we just need to get his heart for our community. So God began to give me his heart for this particular part of our, our community. And I came up with a plan. Actually, I didn't come up with it. God gave it to me. So I'm like, I think that would actually work. And um, this plan would mean that I need to have a group of, of men, specifically, that would spend time ministering with me at least for a year in some less than savory environments. So I went to 12 different people. I went to men who are part of our church. I went to 12 different men, and I pitched this idea to them over lunch. And when I finished, the, I don't normally do this. This is not a good way to recruit volunteers. Um, normally, I like to use this line. So if I ever use this line on you, just need to act like you don't know what I'm talking about. But what I want to think I'll say is, I don't want an answer right now. Don't give me an answer right now. I want you to pray about it, and then I'll follow up with you later. Why? Because then I put it on, you have to pray about it. You take it up with the Lord. I didn't give one of those men that opportunity. It's probably the only time I was trying to recruit somebody. So I pitched the deal to them, and I said, I need an answer right now. So what I'm asking you for is this. Let me be specific. I want you to give me 52 Mondays consecutively. You cannot miss one. So that we can do this ministry within our community. 52 Mondays you have to give to me. About half of the group that I was pitching to were business guys. The one guy worked for a huge corporation and literally was all over the world. He was a trainer for this company and they traveled the world. And... Um, so he asked me a great question. He said, well, what if I'm in... They did a lot of business in Tokyo. And he said, well, what if I'm in Tokyo? I said, you're going to need to fly home. You'll need to fly home Monday so that you can be a part of this on Monday night and you can fly back to Tokyo on Tuesday. And would you believe the guy said, I'll do it. About half of them were business guys like that, that they were going to make huge sacrifices. That guy, that wasn't made up. That wasn't hypothetical. That they did a ton of business in Tokyo. And he did say to me, he said, the company won't pay to fly me back. But if I need to be back on a Monday, if I'm in Tokyo, I'll pay for the flight back from Tokyo at my own expense. Both people said, for 52 Mondays, no matter what, I'll plan my vacation around it. I'll plan my work travel around it. I'll plan everything around being here for 52 Mondays. Why do I tell you that story? Because that's worship. That's giving God our best. That's the kind of commitment he's looking for. So, if that's the kind of commitment that he is looking for, what's the kind of commitment that he's not looking for? I'm glad that you asked. I don't know how many of you were Paul Harvey fans. My dad loved Paul Harvey. And because my dad loved Paul Harvey, I love Paul Harvey. And... Like, I know that they're, like, his son, whatever his name is. I don't even know what his name is. Paul Harvey Jr. Is it Paul Harvey Jr.? Yep. He just doesn't have the stuff of the old man. I mean, he just doesn't, right? I mean, come on. He just doesn't. But I love Paul Harvey. My dad, one year for Christmas, bought me a tape of the best of Paul Harvey. So it's just all these stories that Paul Harvey told. Well, this particular story, Paul Harvey told on November 22nd, 1995. 
And if you think about the date, one of the things that I loved about Paul Harvey is he would always, like Thanksgiving and Christmas, he would always do some special story for, well, the rest of the story for one of those holidays. So this is Thanksgiving. It was his Thanksgiving story. This is what he said. The Butterball Turkey Company set up a hotline to answer consumer questions about preparing holiday turkeys. One woman called to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in her freezer for 23 years. Whoa. 23 years. Turkey's been in the freezer. The operator told her it might be safe to, if the freezer had been below zero degrees the entire time, but the operator warned the woman that even if it were safe, the flavor had probably deteriorated and she wouldn't recommend eating the turkey. The caller replied, that's exactly what I thought. We'll just give it to the church. <laughs> Paul Harvey finished the story by saying this. Please don't offer God blemished lambs or old turkeys. Here's what I want you to know about the time, Amos' time. It wasn't that they were not worshiping because they were. It was just that their worship, they weren't offering their best. They were bringing, as it were, old turkeys. Well, the temptation to hold out is as old as time. Um, you guys know the story of Cain and Abel, right? So the story of Cain and Abel, if you don't know it, I'll just give you a little snippet of it. It's Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. You don't need to turn there. I'll be on it and off of it faster than you'd probably be able to get there. But this is what it says. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So why in the world did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's offering? Over the centuries, there's been all kinds of explanations that have been offered, most of them completely scriptural, but they've often been offered anyways. Some think that God would only accept animal sacrifices. So that's what they've said. They said, well, if you want to please God, it has to be done through animal sacrifice. Well, there's some problems with that. Like number one is you've obviously not read the Bible. So if you're just going to make the assertion that the only offering that's acceptable to God is an animal sacrifice, you've not read the Bible because the Bible talks about grain offerings. Hello? So if you're making a grain offering and that's acceptable to the Lord and the Lord commanded it, how many of you know that's not a blood offering? That's not an animal sacrifice. So obviously it can't be just because, well, you know, God really is in, like he likes barbecue. So he likes the stuff burn up. He likes the good taste of barbecue. I mean, that's just what's going on. Okay, that's not the point. Because obviously if he accepts grain offerings, then that can't be really what's going on. Um, some people have made all kinds of other assertions about what's really going on. Um, most of those, again, don't really line up with scripture so God had commanded both animal and vegetable sacrifices to be offered as long as they were the first fruits. And each of them brought an offering that represented his work, the fruit of his labors. 
um, Cain from the field, Abel from the herd. So it's not the fact that Abel offered an animal sacrifice and Cain didn't. Well, then what in the world's going on? I think the answer really is in the text. So here's what it says. Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil. But Abel brought the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. Now, for that to make sense, let me just tell you one thing about biblical times. That phrase, the fat portions, Caleb will get this. But the phrase, the fat portions, signified the absolute best that you could offer. So of all of the meat that was there, the fat portion was the most desirable. Now, we already know that it's the firstborn of the flock. So he took the very best of the flock and he said, okay, this is the one. And then of this one, I'm going to give the fat portion to, that's, you understand what I'm talking about, don't you, Kaylin? Kaylin loves the fatty stuff. I'm like, that's disgusting. But she loves it. So the fat portion was the best of the best. And that's what he offered to the Lord. I think that really is the answer to it. So, in fact, Hebrews 11.4 says this, that, um, that the, says that the offering was a better offering, literally translated that Cain's was a more excellent offering. So Abel gave the best of the best of the best. He looked around in his flock and he said, which lamb is the best lamb? Because I want to give the best lamb to God to show him that I love him. And then not only is it the best lamb, I'm going to give him the best portion of the best lamb because I want him to know that I love him. And if you read the original language, it sounds more like this. Cain's attitude seems to be, I need to give an offering to God. This will do. It's good enough. It's just... Some of it's great. He didn't give any thought to what was best. It's just like, hey, I gotta do this. I gotta go through the motions. I gotta pay my tithe. I gotta pay my offering. I, I'm just gonna do it because I gotta do it. And it, this this is good enough. And I'll just give this because it's good enough. And Abel takes the time to think about what is my best. And of my best, what is the best of my best? And that's what I wanna give to God. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 6 and verse 23. Just if you're a note taker, you don't need to turn there. I just want you to listen for this idea of giving our best to the Lord. This is Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the teacher of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. Ouch. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture vessels inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels, and they love to sit at the, ta- at the head table at the banquet and in seats of honor in the synagogues. Verse 23, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the most important things. What's the point of all of that? There, they can still see the same attitude of, well, it's good enough. 
I know that God requires it of me. I'm just going to do that. But they're not taking the time to say, what is my best? What matters most? And I've got to do a good job with what matters most. They this overlook that. It's this attitude of, well, it's good enough. You want some really bad news? Like, you want some news that will just ruin your day? You ready? With God, you're good enough. Just ain't good enough. God demands your best. God demands your best. He always demands our best. Well, what in the world does that have to do with us? Deuteronomy 4 verse 29 says this. But from there you'll seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek for him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And a super important verse. Have you ever been in a spot where you needed to find God? You couldn't figure your own way out and you just knew that you needed help. You needed God's help and you needed to find him in the midst of all that stuff. So how do you find him? That's an important question. And if you've not been there yet, well, I've got good news for you. You will be. At some point in your life, you're going to be in this place where, hey, I, I need to find God in the midst of all of this because I'm not quite sure what's going on, but I know that I need his help. So how are you going to find him? When you, you're going to find him when you look for him with all that you've got. When you search for him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your might, you'll find him every time. But if you're just half-hearted about it, if you're just like, ah, well, I don't know, it's good enough. You're not going to find him. I think the, the scourge of the 21st century is half-hearted Christianity. Half-hearted Christianity will never do, never could, but certainly not in our times. Are you seeking for the Lord? Are you seeking for God with all of your heart? James 1.8 says this, He is double-minded man, unstable in all, all of his ways. The word for double-minded literally translated as he has two souls. So James is saying, hey, that this unstable person has two souls. Now, keep in mind that when James was writing that, at that time, it was believed that the seat of the emotion was the soul. So when you're talking about all of the emotional stuff that went with it, you would say that you're talking about the soul. We don't, we don't define it that way. We would say that the seat of the emotion is what? I love you with all of my heart. Now in the Old Testament, so like in the New Testament was soul. And does anybody know what it was in the Old Testament? It was bowels. <laughs> Try that next Valentine's Day. Baby, I want you to know that I love you with all of my bowels. It just that, that doesn't have the ring, does it? The Old Testament, bowels. New Testament, soul. I love you with all of my soul. That we still that might still work, right? It might still work, but we would say heart. So we would translate that verse today in our vernacular. We would say that this, this person is double-hearted, that they have two hearts because it's the seat of the emotion. They're double-hearted. So um, double-hearted, that's what we would probably say in our world today. So if we employ only one of those hearts, if it's just good enough to get by, if we reserve part of ourselves, then we would be half-hearted. Here's a person who's trying to face in two directions at the same time. Have you ever tried to do that? 
This afternoon, I challenge you to do that. I double dog dare you. Stand there and look in two directions at the same time. Try to do it. Man, that's what's going on here. So they're trying to look in two places at the same time. They're trying to live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. They are just enough of the world that they can't be happy in the church. And there's just enough of, of Jesus in them that they can't be happy in the world. Now, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that that's part of what was happening in Amos' day. So were they worshiping Almighty God? Yes, they were. Uh, we know that to be the case because that's what we're told in the Bible. But while they're worshiping Almighty God, the Bible also tells us there's this phrase, I told you we'd come back to it, in chapter 5 where it says that the gods, lowercase g, of Bethel will not be able to save you from the fire. See that verse? The gods, lowercase g, of Bethel won't be able to save you from the fire. So here's what's interesting. It's ironic about that verse. I mean, the irony is just, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. It just boggles the mind. So... Here's what's said. They have this word from Almighty God that says, hey, listen, um, this is what's going to happen to you because you don't do justice and you, you're not worshiping me. Or if you are worshiping me, you're worshiping me half-hearted. So then he puts this line in there. He says, the gods of Bethel won't be able to save you. Now, here's a little bit of a word study for you. That verse is amazing simply because, like, oh, my goodness, you got to understand all that. So the gods, lowercase g, of Bethel. Does anybody know what the word Bethel means? Well, you will. So Bethel is actually a compound word, which is just a fancy way of saying it's made up of two words. So the first part of the word Bethel is Beth. Everyone say Beth. Like Bethlehem. Same thing, Beth. Beth is house. House. Bethlehem then is what? House of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. House of bread. So you have house, Beth, and you have L. In the original language, it's not L, lowercase e, L. It's capital E, L. It's two words, Beth, L. Does anybody know what L means? If you're in Chicago, it's the train that you ride on to work. You ride on the L, the elevated platform. You know. But that's not it. So L is one of the names of Almighty God. You've got to get this. Don't miss this. So God says, the gods, lowercase g, of the house of God won't be able to save you. Do they worship Almighty God? Yes, they do. But they've allowed their other gods, lowercase g, to be brought into the house of God. And you wonder why he's ticked. How does that relate to us today? I'm so glad that you asked. Do we worship God? Absolutely. Do we do our best to make sure that it's done with excellence? Absolutely. Do we give God our best? Absolutely. But do you know still today, it's possible for us to do what we do and still bring our God's lowercase g into the house of God. That would be a good place for you to say amen. Right? Do you understand that it's possible for us to do that? That we bring our God's lowercase g into the house of God. And sometimes we... 
like we can get caught up in worshiping the trappings and we can get caught up in worshiping our preferences and and we make it about what we want, not about what he wants. And we bring our God's lowercase g into the house of God. And then we wonder why he doesn't approve of our worship. Because the reality is, all that we do, all of our worship has to be about him. That kind of makes sense, right? So we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. Why? Because it's the only way that we'll ever find him. And if you don't need to find him right now, just trust me, there's coming a time very soon that you will. So one of the kinds of worship that displeases God is when we, when we offer him our worship that is half-hearted, no effort, we don't care, we have divided loyalties, we have conflicting interests, we just do enough to get by. Hey, I've got to do something, so this is good enough. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. That the worship that God expects from His people always demands our very best. It always demands our very best. They just play in the song, kind of in the background. Um, I'm going to get everybody else to help us with that. And the, we're going to sing it together, kind of as our closing. So the song dates back to the 1990s. Um, the 1990s and you've heard the story before maybe not with as much detail but I thought that it was a good way for us just to kind of wrap up today so the song was written by Matt Redmond and at the time Matt Redmond was helping with worship at a church in Watford, England and the name of the church, I like the name of the church it's, it's something different, it was called Soul Survivor it's the name of the church so in the church in Watford, England, Soul Survivor. Um, and by the way, I mean, a lot of the worship uh, revival that's happening and continues to happen across the world really started in this part of England. So um, at the time, Redmond's congregation was struggling to finding the meaning of um, worship and music. And the pastor, uh, he got up one Sunday morning without talking about it this plan with anybody else. He got up one Sunday morning and he said, hey, I just think that we've we've kind of majored on all the minors and minored on all the majors. And I just feel like we're completely out of balance. So starting today, there will not be any music whatsoever in the church until we get proper balance and perspective. He went so far as to like all the musical instruments, he had them removed from the church. So there'll be absolutely no music until we get proper balance. And what we'll do instead is we will come and we will bring our own expressions of worship. And you can imagine how that went over. So like the first week they come and he's like, hey, we'll all bring our expressions of worship. And there were these awkward moments of silence. People just sat there. But eventually they started to realize that we have to bring our best. And then when we bring our best, that that is worship. It's not about music. It's not about the songs that we sing. It's not about our preferences. And um, in the midst of all that stuff, Matt Redman wrote the song that we'll sing here in a second. And the gist of the song is about this. It's, it's not about any of that stuff. That all of our worship is about Him. And about giving Him our absolute best. And that if we're not careful, we end up having all kinds of other things that matter more to us than just honoring Him. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is that we honor Him. Amen. 
Amen? Amen. So this is that song, and um, I just want you to encourage you to do this with me today, okay? I just want you to, to think about the worship that you bring as an individual. And I just want you to have an honest conversation with God. Is it your best? Because that's what He's going to demand. He's going to demand our absolute best. So is what I'm bringing to Him as my worship, is it my best? And if it is, that's great. And if it's not, why don't we just promise to bring our best and worship to Him? And we'll offer our very best and hold nothing back. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand together.